Well, first of all, thanks for coming out uh, after a great um, lesson by Randy. And this is the first time we've been here since 2019. It's good to see all of you. Some of y'all have been in uh, classes I've done in the past, and I appreciate you coming back. Uh, tonight, <clears throat> we're going to just dive in to Jonah. And I want to tell you a little bit about uh, how, I, how I've arrived at Jonah. Um, I first decided to preach Jonah in 1993, and I thought it was going to be a really simple task. I had just gotten out of undergrad school, had just gotten married, and was just in my first ministry in uh, Louisiana, right outside New Orleans. <clears throat> And I decided that I would preach this book. And I thought it was just going to be a really simple little thing. So I bought a couple of commentaries, and that's what you're supposed to do. And I started reading the book and digging into it. And it just really just kind of blew me away. I'm assuming that everybody knows the basic story. And Jonah gets called, he runs away, he gets swallowed by fish, and the Ninevites, they change, okay? And we've all seen the VeggieTales version of Jonah. Well, you know, I knew all that, and uh, that's pretty much how I approached the book. I approached the book as a vacation Bible school uh, story. And by the time I got done, I realized that this is not a children's book. It is uh, extremely complex. But anyway, I preached through it, and I just really learned so unbelievably much in that study. And at the same time, I was undergoing as, um, some changes in my own life, how I was reading the Bible, and how I needed to interact with people and my understanding of God, my understanding of the people of God, my understanding of Jesus. And anyway, I moved away from uh, Louisiana, and I started going to grad school. And I was going to grad school, and I ended up taking a class. Um, it was a seminar with a fellow by the name of John Fortner. I don't know if any of you all know who John Fortner is, but <clears throat> he's a professor and he just literally blew my mind on, on Jonah. In fact, he's probably the person who has affected my understanding of the book of Jonah more than anybody. And also a German scholar by the name of Hans Walter Wolf, who did a series of lectures on Jonah called The Church in Revolt. He's got a commentary, too, in the Continental Series, but he did a series of ser uh, uh, lectures called The Church in Revolt. <clears throat> And if I could just read those to you, that would be my, my lecture, because uh, they are amazing. Then I moved to a place called Milwaukee, and I decided that I needed to repent of my earlier sermons on Jonah. So I decided that I would preach Jonah again. And I came back to it, and this was probably 10 years later. And I thought I had learned a lot, come along, and I would uh, approach the text again. And I thought I would do it in five weeks. And I had some people say, how are you going to get five weeks of sermons 
out of the little book of Jonah. It turned out I could get 10 weeks out of it. So it just, again, completely started deconstructing my own mind on a lot of different things. Again, on how I read the Bible and how I see God, how I see the people of God, how I see um, my relationship with God. And so that became, I call, a kind of a, a subversive work. Well, I moved away from Milwaukee, and I moved to a place called Tucson, Arizona, and I moved there in 2007, and I decided in 2014 that I would preach Jonah again. And so I came back to the book, and I put everything on the side. I bought some new commentaries. I downloaded probably 100 articles on the book, and I just went through them. And I decided that I really didn't understand the book. But I was going to preach it anyway. (laughs) So then I was asked to do a family encampment at uh, the Grand Canyon called uh, Copper Basin uh, Family Encamp. And they asked me to do the book of Jonah. So I was like, man, I'm really doing this uh, on a regular basis. So I did it. And everybody seemed to like it, and I was like, okay, uh, my thoughts on this book are really coming together. And then I decided that because I moved again, uh, this time I'm living in the Bay, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, uh, east side, and uh, that I would revisit the book. Because we've been in COVID, we've been all this kind of jazz, and sometimes we're just trying to figure out who we are. And I think the book of Jonah is a book that asks that question, who are we? And I think the book tries to answer that question. So we're going to wrestle with that again. I've gone through the book. Uh, The last time I uh, preached for the book, I made my own translation of the book. That's right here. If you all want to have a copy of it, I can get that to you. Uh, We're going to be referring to that. Uh, And so... I love this book. I believe that preachers, if you're in ministry, people assume that you know something about the Bible. Uh, Anyway, um, sometimes after I've been preaching for a really long time, I've I've learned that that's not a very good assumption to make. But I do believe that uh, a minister ought to become a true, uh, somewhat uh, of of an expert on at least a handful of books in the Bible. And those that I have chosen to do that on are the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Jonah, the book of Psalms, the Gospel of John, and the book of Romans. Uh, Those, really, I think if you get those, then you really got the whole whole shebang. So, anyway, that's that's how I've come to this book. I think that the the book is, um, it's 48 verses. That's it. It, it is a wonderful story. I believe the author loves the people of God. And I believe the author is concerned about the people of God. And the question that the author is asking, what is my role, and not only my role, our role in the world that we live in? 
So anyway, I think Jonah wrestles with those particular issues. And at the heart of that is your vision of God. If we are the people of God, how we understand ourselves as the people really focuses and flows out of who I think God is. You know, Randy Harris just said tonight, you know, we can be fans of Jesus, but Jesus is already somebody, and he's not somebody that I can just uh, recreate my own image uh, and fabricate a particular Jesus. I have to try to understand at least the biblical Jesus on his own terms, and I think Scripture does that with God and the book of Jonah. So anyway, we're calling it a love so deep. Um, I really didn't have a cool title for it, but I have called the book of Jonah different things over the years, and I've tried to use these titles to try to say what the message of the book is. So I'm going to give you a couple of those. I have called the book before Jonah God's fugitive. Okay, He's a fugitive. He's running away. He doesn't want anything to do with God. I have also called the book in the past uh, what it's like when God is king. When you're looking at the world, what does the world look like when God is king? Not me. And so the way things work in the world and how you interact with other people uh, is very different than how I would interact with the world if I was king. You know, Tom Petty sang a song, it's good to be king even for a day, you know. Jonah sometimes wants to do that. He wants to be king for a day. And, but if we live in a world where Yahweh is king, and I'm not king, then what does the world look like? And the book of Jonah, I think, shows us what it looks like when God, Yahweh, is king and not me. And my last one is wrestling with God. And I'm going to unpack that one just a little bit uh, here in just a second. So anyway, I've got this one up here. Uh, Salvation is at Yahweh's discretion. Chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, that really, I think, as we're going to go and see, this is kind of an ironic statement in the book, but it is the author's theology. And this is what he's putting out there. And he is saying, this is the truth. Even if Jonah said it, this is the truth. And we need to, it's not at my discretion. If God is king, he can do whatever he wants, all right? So he is the one who owns, and he is the one who dispenses salvation, and he doesn't ask me for my permission or for my approval of what the king does with his salvation, because it is his. And Jonah does confess that, but the irony in this is that Jonah tries to be king for a day and decide who, in fact, gets to have salvation. So anyway, we're going to go to the... <clears throat> so I'm going to begin with this to kind of frame what I'm doing with the book because I may say some things that you probably may already know or you may never have heard of before. And you may be leaving tonight and say, that is just the strangest thing I've ever heard. But I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say them and uh, try to make it uh, what it ought to be, at least in my mind. <clears throat> so the book is Yahweh and Israel. It is Israel and the nations. So in remembering our story, 
we remember who we are. Okay? This is, this is fairly good Christian theology. We do this every week. We come to the Lord's table and we tell our story. And our story is supposed to tell us who we are. And when I know who I am, that's how I live in a certain way. And so what we're going to see is I take the story anyway. That's what Jonah's doing. The author of Jonah is doing an exercise in remembering our story as we interact with another people's story and trying to understand their story through our story. And when we do that, we find ourselves, we discover who we are, who we're supposed to be, and who we're supposed to be is a blessing. As we go through this, that's what we're going to see. The book of Jonah interacts with almost the whole biblical canon uh, as it tells its story, especially some very foundational stories like Abraham and the Exodus story. <clears throat> so, all right, uh, just some real quick things here. The date of the book, I think, is pretty critical for how Bobby Valentine understands the book. All right, sometimes that doesn't matter on a book. But I happen to believe that the book of Jonah and how I understand the book, this is important. Jonah is, in my understanding, one of the last books of the Hebrew Bible to be written. Okay? Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. It's full of some <clears throat> uh, technical Hebrew constructions, Aramaisms, but it also is because it is in constant dialogue with older and previous biblical stories. So when this author wrote, those stories had to already exist. Are you following me? <clears throat> so the date of the story is important, and this is a story about a pre-exilic northern prophet told by a post-exilic community there are three and possibly 400 years between the historical person, and I believe Jonah was a historical person, and the story that's told. So that's like me sitting down one day, and I'm going to write a story about Christopher Columbus. All right? So we're talking not quite that long, but a long time between the author and the person. All right? So we have to ask the question, at least when we're approaching the book, why am I a <coughs> post-exilic person writing a story? The post-exilic community is also basically made up of who? Judeans. They're the southern kingdom. And it's a story about the northern kingdom, which was destroyed by the Assyrians, not by the Babylonians. It's not a story about the Babylonians, it's a story about the Assyrians. And so, why? And I'm going to use this term right here. <clears throat> the next thing that's important in this book is what I call mashups. <clears throat> I like music. How many people like music? <clears throat> and since the 1990s, this new approach to uh, music is called mashups. That's where you'll have a contemporary artist... They come along and they write a song or they compose music 
and they go back a generation, and they pull in from the Beatles, or they'll pull in from the Rolling Stones, or they'll pull in from somebody else, and they will incorporate an old music into their own music. The actual definition for a matchup, I mean a mashup, is a piece of music created by digitally overlaying an instrumental track with a vocal track from a different recording. Now you hear this all the time, you may not know, and because I figured that we'd be talking to people more my age, I'm using some, um, uh, some more contemporary, at least uh, they were contemporary 30 years ago, illustrations. Everybody's heard of Vanilla Ice. How many people have heard of Vanilla Ice? And what did Vanilla Ice do? He, he took stuff from Queen and David Bowie and incorporated it into his own music. And why did he do that? Well, he won. Well, at least for Vanilla Ice, he denied he did it, but everybody else knew he did it, right? And he ended up in court. But then you get Kid Rock comes along this, and Kid Rock cannot write a song without pulling in stuff from previous artists a generation ago. So in his song, All Summer Long, he's basically ripping off Leonard Skinner. How many people have heard of Leonard Skinner? So, and what does he do? And Rock is doing that because he loves Leonard Skinner. And he wants people who are hearing his music to associate his music with that music, which makes him look important, right? And it makes his music appealing. That's what it does. And uh, a couple of years ago, the Bad Wolves, Bad Wolves, they, they did a mashup, and they just, it was an all-out cover. Uh, they covered the Cranberries, Zombie. I don't know if y'all have ever heard that song or not, but, whew, the Cranberries, that was the 1990s. Bad Wolves come along in 2018, and it's one of the greatest covers or mashups that you can get. And Dolores appears in the video. She's singing even though she has just died. And what they're doing is they're trying to honor her and honor the song, Zombie, if you ever listen to it, the unbelievable lyrics, and say, this is something that's going on, but it's still going on in our world today, and we need to hear it, that this is a transgenerational type of happening. And so you find these modern artists connecting with previous artists, and this is what I'm calling mashups. Earlier art is essential to the message of the artist. And what I want to suggest to you is that 2,400 years ago, there was already an artist who knew what a mashup was. And that artist was doing it over and over and over. And the artist assumes, just like Kid Rock does, Kid Rock assumes that you know who ZZ Top is when he starts playing ZZ Top. He assumes that you know who Leonard Skinner is, and he doesn't have to tell you that. Because if he has to tell you that, you actually miss the point. Y'all are following me, right? So, the artist who has produced the book of Jonah has done the same thing. He assumes you know the music. You know the music. And everybody who has gone to church all their life, they already know the music. We know the music. And the music is floating around like a poltergeist in our head. And he picks that out. 
and says we're going to engage with this to remember our story as we're talking about who we really are. So, all right. Uh, one of the things that is cool about this book <clears throat> are words, of course. Uh, but this is a way that the artist um, uh, inculcates uh, those mashups uh, where he is trying to get us to reflect on certain things. So, uh, a key in this particular book is polyvalence. Uh, polyvalence, as you can see, the word itself is made up of two colors. It's one word, but it's more than one. It's a word that occurs where there's maybe three or four different possible meanings. All of them make sense. How are you going to translate this in English? How do you understand this? The answer is yes. You embrace them all. You don't have to say it's only one because the writer doesn't want you to think of only one. The writer wants you to make a couple of different associations. That's what the whole point of the match mashup is. Okay? Is this Kid Rock song or is this Leonard Skinner song? What's the answer? Yes. 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 All right? So... What are some of these words? In your English text, this word is almost always translated as cry. It's going to happen in the very first word, very first verse. Okay? What, what is cry? Go cry to the city. Okay? Go cry to that place. Well, what does that mean? It's got several different possibilities. Even in the book of Jonah, where it's going to be translated differently. It's the word pray. Well, preaching and praying are pretty much the same thing. Okay? So which one is it? God's going to say to Jonah, or Yahweh's going to say to Jonah, go cry. Well, what do you mean by that? You want us to cry to the city, which we're going to understand as preaching to it, or does it mean I'm going to go and pray about it? Okay? So another word is the word evil. Uh, this is probably my biggest problem with most English translations of the book of Jonah, is it does not let you know how many times this word occurs in this book. Okay? Um, <clears throat> and as we go through it, this is a word that can mean mad, angry, bad, and the answer, which is it? It's, yes. The Ninevites are what? The evil has come up before me. That's this particular word. Okay? Uh, and Jonah gets really mad. Well, what is it? He, it's this word right here. So, what is it? It's, yes, the writer is actually playing on the polyvalent meaning of these terms. Now, writers do this a lot. The Gospel of John does this. Okay? So, good writers do this, and this raw author of the book of Jonah is an exquisite artist. I use that word on purpose. He is an artist who loves the people of God. And this artist, artist is concerned about the people of God. He's kind of concerned about himself. Another word, actually, uh, technique through the book is repetition. Uh, a simple chord 
You know, the Beatles used to do this all the time. Uh, and you remember it. Well, repetition is something that shows up in the book and informs the meaning as we go through. And we're going to see this quite uh, drastically here in a second. The word great is one of those words that just occurs over and over and over. In fact, it occurs 14 times in 48 verses. That's a lot, don't you think? Everything is great. And, um, okay, so, had to have a drink of Dr. Pepper. And the word down, <laughs> especially in the first two chapters, the word down happens over and over and over and over and over again. Well, does that word, this is also, it's a repetitive word, but it's also a polyvalent word. Does it mean I'm literally going down, or is it describing a condition that is in Jonah? Are you all following me? All right. So, I'm going to show you a picture. I lived in Milwaukee. Uh, where I did one of those sermon series on the book of Jonah. And in Milwaukee is one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. It's called the Calatrava. Anybody ever heard of the Calatrava? It is the Milwaukee Art Museum. Looks like a ship that's sailing out on Lake Michigan. It's beautiful. And when you're getting up on I-794 and the sun is just setting down and all of a sudden it looks like this gleam of light that's bursting over Lake Michigan. And it's just beautiful, beautiful uh, artwork. When you're inside, it looks like this. You've seen it in movies, okay? The Transformers, for example, has more than one scene in this particular building. Uh, they, they tell you they're in Chicago, but they're not. They are in Milwaukee. <clears throat> but what do you notice about this particular? This side looks like a mirror of this side. And we call that symmetry. And there is lots of symmetry in the book of Jonah, which plays on all those things that we have just talked about that help us hear the book. And that's one of the things that we need to remember, this book was not read silently in people's minds. In the ancient world, even all the way up until basically the Reformation period, the way people encountered the book of Jonah was orally and out loud. People did not have Bibles. That's why I say it Eastside all the time. People in the ancient world did not have a Bible. They could not carry their Bible home. Most of them couldn't read, and the rest of them couldn't afford it. As I tell people all the time, you know, if you went to the bookstore and you picked up the latest copy of uh, Paul's bestseller, it was the book of Romans. The book of Romans is right here. It's at Barnes and & Noble's, and you go in there, and it says it's on sale for $1,999.95. Most of us would just look and walk away. But that's how much that book would cost in the first century. About 2,000 bucks. Nobody could afford it. And they certainly couldn't afford some bound volume which didn't even exist in the first century. The way they encountered the scriptures was in communal settings, out loud, with one person reading, 
and the rest of everybody listening. You can find this in the biblical text itself, like Revelation. Blessed is the one, singular, who reads. Blessed are those, plural, who hear these words. Because nobody was going home and trying to check up on the preacher and say, did he actually get that? Because they couldn't do that. Books were owned by the community, kind of like at Qumran. Qumran is, in fact, a great illustration of this. The community owns the book. Nobody owns a book. So, this is a beautiful illustration of what's going on in the book of Jonah that was heard out loud. So, the symmetry of the book. The first half, there's going to be six scenes in the book of Jonah. And these scenes mirror each other the way that Calatrava does. So, in scene one, what we have is chapter one, verses one through three, and you have Yahweh. As I said earlier, it's Yahweh and Israel, Israel and the nations. That's what this book is about. Yahweh is with Jonah. That's how the book opens. Scene two is the rest of chapter two. And in English, there's uh, 17 verses, but in Hebrew, there's only 16. And verse 17 is actually chapter one of, uh, verse one of chapter two. So, in, uh, <clears throat> what you have is Jonah with the Gentiles. Okay? Scene three is chapter two, and it is. Yahweh with Jonah. See how the Gentiles are in the middle, Yahweh's on both sides, and Jonah is kind of like in the middle of a peanut butter jelly sandwich. Okay? What we're going to see is in the second half of the book, that's chapters 3 and 4, you have the exactly same thing. Okay? So, and these things are intimately connected. Again, kind of like a song where you have... Uh, verse 1 and verse 2, and you have a chorus that connects these things together, and the chorus happens several times throughout the, the particular song, connecting this chorus, I mean, the, the verses together. So, in the second half of the book, we have scene 4, and it's chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and it is, once again, Yahweh with Jonah, just like the opening of the book. In fact, it's almost identical. It's that symmetry, the mirror, which lets us know uh, how I'm supposed to understand this as well. Okay, and then in scene five, which is basically the meat of chapter three, um, is Jonah with the Gentiles. And then scene six is chapter four, verses one through 11. And it is Yahweh with Jonah. As you can see, once again, Jonah with the Gentiles, sandwiched between Yahweh with Jonah, just like a sandwich. Again, this is the basic outline of the book. And what we're going to notice is how these particular scenes mirror each other even more details. So this is pretty cool. Okay, chapter 1 and chapter 3, all right? So, 
In chapter 1, we have uh, the words, uh, I want to call them the commissionings. Okay, there's two commissionings. And the opening is Jonah's commission from Yahweh. And the opening of chapter 3 is the second commission from Yahweh to Jonah. And the words are exactly the same. Arise, go, cry. Now remember that word cry is what? It's a polyvalent term, and it could be go, rise, and pray, okay? Um, so that's what we see in chapter 3. This uh, line down here is supposed to be over here. You get the call, arise, go, cry, in verse 2 of chapter 3. My chart didn't come out very pretty here. So in chapter 1, Jonah flees, and in chapter Three, Jonah goes, and in chapter 1, God acts, and in chapter 3, Jonah acts. In chapter 1, the sailors call on the gods, and in Nineveh, uh, the, and we're going to talk about this more tomorrow night, um, at least how I understand that, that the Ninevites call on the deity, okay? <clears throat> And the captain identifies Elohim's powers behind the storm. Now, these are pagans, okay? In the story, they're pagans. We need to remember that. They're, they're pagans. And the storm showing up is to them, and you don't have to be a believer in Yahweh to know that the storm is coming because the gods are mad at us. And that's exactly what they say to Jonah, okay? Um, but anyway, so that's mirrored in the king who seeks Elohim's will. The captain identifies the Elohim's power behind the storm. The king identifies or seeks Elohim's will as well. The sailors, as the story goes, they pray to Yahweh. That's how the first scene ends. Uh, the sailors pray to Yahweh lest we perish. That's mirrored in the king of Nineveh who prays to Elohim, lest we perish. The phrase shows up again. And so the king is doing what the sailors do. So the king and the sailors are somehow uh, basically mirrors of one another. Does, does this make, make sense to everybody? All right. <clears throat> All right. Chapter 2. In chapter 4, they're the mirrors. Uh, this is a little more straightforward. So, Jonah is saved, and you get the counter to that. Jonah is angry, and that's one of those polyvalent words. Jonah is what? It's the audience participation part. <laughs> Jonah is evil. evil. Have the people of God become a curse to the world rather than a blessing? And I think that's one of the things that Jonah's, not, not the prophet, the author is wrestling with. Have the people of God become a curse rather than a blessing? 
So Jonah is saved, and Jonah is angry, evil. Jonah prays in chapter 2, and Jonah prays in chapter 4. God responds to Jonah in chapter 2, and God responds in chapter 4. All right, so uh, I'm just laying down some groundwork here, trying to uh, get a big picture of what's going on in the book, so I can suggest to you my, my take on this book, because I think it's just amazing. Uh, <clears throat> this is the Assyrian Empire, okay? Uh, just going to throw this in here. Nineveh's right here. Nineveh, uh, everybody knows Nineveh in our modern world as Mosul, okay? In Iraq, uh, the Marines fought there during the... Uh, the second Gulf War, um, and remember ISIS took it over, and then we fought for a year trying to get it back, <clears throat> and uh, outside of Nineveh used to be the traditional tomb of Jonah the prophet, because Islam honors Jonah. They believe Jonah is a prophet. In fact, all the Hebrew Bible prophets are uh, revered by, by Islam. So they had his tomb outside there, and of course ISIS blew it up, um, but for a lot of different reasons. They're iconoclasts. Um, now, Jonah would have been from somewhere right around in here. Joppa would be down here, okay? And we're going to come to that down, down, down stuff on Jonah in a little bit. <clears throat> but anyway, this is the world of uh, the time of Jonah, and it's pretty much like the world that we live in today. Okay, um, just wanted you to have that in your head. Um, all right. Ha, the dove. Some of you probably know this, and some of you don't. The word Jonah is how we know Jonah in our language. Um, and we speak English, but the folks in, the, in Israel did not. Right? In fact, English wouldn't exist for, man, 2,500 years after Jesus, you know, something, well, not 2,500 years. Old English starts coming around, Chaucer, most of us couldn't read Chaucer, so uh, 1,300 years, something like that. Okay, if you tried to pick up Chaucer, most of us really would not be able to read it. Uh, so, this dove, uh, Jonah is the dove. Is this supposed to be a person or a, a manifestation of or a personification of Israel? And I believe because of the author's continued use of the polys, as I call them, he wants us to think about what? Both. Okay? The answer is yes. It's not just Jonah. Jonah was real. But the story is told 400 years after Jonah. It's not about Jonah. It's about a southern kingdom. It's about a southern community that's struggling with its sense of identity and its purpose in the world. And how can this, this story 
of something that 400 years ago, about a capital that destroyed a distant memory of a people of God. How can, how can this shape us? How can this help us understand who we are? Because we're re in remembering our story, we remember who we are. That's how I begin this. So, the dove, just like if I would say, Uncle Sam wants you. We all would understand that Uncle Sam, number one, is not a real person, right? That Uncle Sam is somehow representative of all America, right? The president, all right? So I think we need to have that in our head and when we're reading the book of Jonah, uh, the book of the dove, the book of the dove. It opens up with, and this is an unusual way to open up a book. And I'm just going to throw this out here. We all know that Jonah was a prophet, but we don't know that Jonah was a prophet from the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah never calls Jonah a prophet. I don't know if you ever knew that or not, but the book of Jonah never one time calls Jonah a prophet the author knows you know that because we have gone to church. we got the music in our head. This is the mashups we're talking about. Okay? So, there once was a man. There once was a man. And his name was Jonah, the son of Amittai. Well, it almost sounds like once upon a time, doesn't it? That's... Almost what it sounds like. Because the author is really not too concerned about Jonah. He's concerned about helping us understand who God is and what it's like when God is king. And when we remember what it's like when God is king, we remember who we are and what we're supposed to be. Does that make sense? All right. So, the word Jonah... I read a book several years ago by a Jewish scholar by the name of T.A. Terry. And it's called, The Honeymoon is Over, Jonah's Argument with God. It is a brilliant book. Um, and in that book, he deals with just reams of intertextuality. That's what I'm calling the mashups. The mashups are what scholars call intertextualities, okay? Um, but I like mashup better because all these uh, Old Testament PhDs, they, they don't talk to people. So uh, um, they don't. So I'm like, you got to come up with something better than that. So uh, this word, Yona, though, is a spicy word in Scripture. And... Terry makes the argument that it's actually intended, it's another one of those poly words, to have almost an erotic, tender feeling to it. And he gets that from a lot of different places, but especially the book of Psalms, Song of Solomon, okay? Where the word occurs over and over and over and over and over and over in the Psalm of Songs. The word is clearly a, uh, a juicy word. Now, the, the 
the interesting thing about that is because the woman who's in the Song of Songs is constantly called the beloved. She is the object of love. So as you're going through the story of the book of Jonah, we know that God loves Jonah. It's a love too deep. He loves Jonah. He doesn't just love the Ninevites. He loves Jonah. He's passionate about Jonah. Jonah is the object of his affection. Yahweh loves Jonah. We've got to remember that. One of the things that we go through the book is that it is an exercise of understanding Exodus 34.6, which I call the God Creed. Okay? Most important text in the Bible. It's the John 3.16 of the Hebrew Bible. In fact, John 3.16, in my opinion, is a restatement of Exodus 34.6. And you come along, and it says, Yahweh is a gracious God, a merciful God. And it says what else? Slow to anger. The first part is actually quoted in the book of Jonah, in chapter 4. We're going to get there. That phrase that is left out, though, is that God is slow to anger. God is patient. And if Jonah is not the illustration of God's patience, he's slow to anger, he's merciful and forgiving of the Ninevites, but he is unbelievably patient with Jonah. That's us, as we're going to see. So, the Song of Songs says, My Jonah is in the cleft of the rock. Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 14. Open to me, my sister, my love, my Jonah, my blameless one. Listen to that. My Jonah, the blameless one. And then, it says, Unique is my Jonah, my pure one. Song of Songs, chapter 6, verse 9. You can see several different references to Jonah in the book of Song of Songs. And we know that this Jonah, I don't have to go with Terry. The Bible calls Israel Jonah. And does it at the beginning of the book of the Twelve. Now, Jonah, in its canonical sequence, is part of a larger group of books that are called the Book of the Twelve. The Book of the Twelve, that's Hosea through Malachi. They are part of a single scroll. Okay? And most scholars today recognize that these books are actually talking to one another as you're going through them. And it's kind of interesting, in the places where this happens, in the Book of Hosea, all right? In Hosea, Ephraim, everybody, we got the song in our head. Ephraim is who? Northern Israel. And Jonah, the old dude, is from where? Northern Israel. Right? Northern Israel. Ephraim, Israel, has become like a what? Like a Jonah. Like a Jonah. And I love what it says here. And if this doesn't describe the book, I don't know what does. Silly and without sense. Ephraim has become silly. My dove, my, my dove has become silly and without sense. And so we find this several times in the book of Hosea. It shows up in Psalm 74, verse 19, and in several other places as well. So I just want you to see that, that as we're going through this, that the story is not just about Jonah, the 
this 7th century or 8th century prophet, it is again about the people. It is about us. It is Israel and God and who we are and who we are supposed to be by remembering our story. And we're going to see how embedded Israel's uh, scriptures are in this book in just a moment. Uh, By remembering the story, we remember how I am supposed to relate to the nations. All right? Here's another one. So we have we have Jonah or Jonah who could represent everyone, and this is kind of interesting. Uh, that's that's without denying that there is a real person by that particular name. He calls him the son of Amittai. So uh, you remember in the Gospels we got a couple of guys who were called the sons of thunder. You remember that? <laughs> um, and those sons of thunder. That didn't mean that Thunder was their dad. Y'all are following, starting to follow me on this? That's not what it meant. It meant that they were explosive people. Okay? They had a tendency to blow up. John had to mellow. Well, this Amitai here comes from, uh, it means, it comes from Emmet, which means... Amen. You say it all the time. It means truth. But it's one of those words that's poly. We can translate it a number of different ways, and all of them are correct. And different nuances in certain settings, but is, it a, is he a son of truth? Is he a son of faithfulness? Is he a faithful one? Is he the true one? (coughs) And if we understand Jonah, not just to be about the prophet, but Jonah is describing the people, then the question becomes, are we the faithful people of God? Are you following me? Are we the faithful ones? Are we true to the calling that God has given us? And I think this is something that we need to wrestle with in our own world. All I have to do is look back at all the stuff that's gone on in, in COVID and how unbelievably, in Bobby Valentine's opinion, how many times Christians have forgotten that we're supposed to deny ourselves for the sake of other people. Okay? So, are we the faithful ones? And if, if irony is being built into this story, the fact that the, the faithful one immediately disobeys God... That's kind of interesting. It raises the question about us. Anyway, I, I find it interesting. I hope y'all do too. <laughs> I, I don't believe the Bible's boring. Anybody believe the Bible's boring in here? I, it is so fascinating what's going on in this little bitty book. Um, so... The dove flies from Yahweh's face. That word that's translated as presence means face. Okay? And we need to, it's one of those words we need to keep that in our head. To be in a person's face, that's their presence. That's an intimate relationship with them. You want to go kiss your wife, you get in her face to do that, right? And if Yonah is the beloved one, then 
just like the Song of Songs says, he, the very first verse of Songs, let him kiss me with the kisses of his lips. That's the very first verse. What a great way to begin a, a book of the Bible, right? Um, <clears throat> so, the dove flies, and I'm going to use the word dove from now on, basically, because doves are birds. And what do they do? They fly. And the dove is going to fly, not just from Yahweh's presence, which we might think is somehow localized, but trying to run away from his face, which means I'm running away from the person. I don't want anything to do with him. Okay? I'm trying to escape them. And so, what we find here in chapter uh, 1, verse 2, is the, the call... Just going to read it. Well, I, what I'm going to... Oh, oh, I'm going to put this on here. Let me check and see what time it is, too. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, in the very first two verses, we get the arise, go to Nineveh, and cry out to it, pray to it. Because, it says, it's evil, it's evil has come up before me. But we have learned what mashups are, and we're already getting them, okay? So, all of a sudden, this language, first about the word cry, and the words uh, come up before me, because I've gone to Sunday school, and I've learned this, and sometimes this has just been drilled into my head. I've got to have it in my head. I recognize that language, if all of a sudden, sudden uh, somebody came to your church and they were asked to lead a prayer and they said, uh, uh, Dear Lord, after we've been there for 10,000 years, most of us would recognize that comes from what? Amazing Grace. I remember uh, having, and he was a wonderful, good man uh, in Milwaukee, that every single time he led our congregation in prayer, he always quoted from the song that was sung right before it. And most of us probably have been around where we have people who've done the communion talks and all that kind of jazz, and it's almost like we have a creed book. Because I've lived in Alabama and I've lived in, in California, and the, people, the things that people say around communion in Oakland are the same as they are in Florence, Alabama. So we got something going on there in our collective memory, and we recognize the words, guide, guard, and direct us. Give the preacher a ready recollection of the things he studied, but don't let him know anything more than what he's actually learned from that, that, that <laughs> debate book. You know. So, but where does this come from? Okay? And this is where the author starts connecting us with the story, remembering who we are. From the very beginning when he says, go cry to that wicked city, that evil city, that great city, which should also say something to us because Jerusalem is the only other city that I know of in the Bible that is called great. So <clears throat> what we have here is the very beginning of the people of God. And what does it say? Uh, we, we need to go there. We need to just read this. Genesis chapter 18. 
because the author knows and he makes Jonah know the Bible. As we're going to see, Jonah knows the Bible, he knows the story, and the people who are reading it also know the story. In Genesis 18, we have uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? And when I say Sodom and Gomorrah, I don't have to tell you that that's the stereotypical archetype of what? Evil, right? This is what happens. <clears throat> then the men set out from there. This is verse 16. And they looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Here Yahweh is talking to himself. I'm about to do something. Shall I hide it from Abraham what I'm about to do? But notice in verse uh, 18, Yahweh dis discusses this with himself and decides that he's got to tell Abraham what he's about to do. And notice why he's telling Abraham. He says, Seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and notice this, it's interesting that this phrase shows up here. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I'm about to go and blow Sodom up. Shall I hide this from Abram since all nations are supposed to be blessed through him? Are you some bells going off? How is he going to bless all nations, which includes Sodom and Gomorrah? Okay? Notice what Yahweh says. No, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. It's so interesting that this language happens right here at the destruction of Sodom and what God is expecting Abraham to do. So the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised. Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry that has come up before me. There's our words. Okay? So the author is quoting our text here. He's like, oh, and what does Abram do? You remember what he did? The men go off, and in verse 22 through the end of the chapter, Abram makes a fool out of himself by practicing justice and righteousness, by being a blessing to the nations, by praying for Sodom and Gomorrah. Will you destroy Sodom for the sake of 50 people who are righteous? And the Lord says, no. I've chosen you. This is your ministry. You are supposed to represent the people before me. You're, be, you're a blessing to the nations. I will not destroy them for the sake of 50 because you asked. Because that's what you've been appointed to. Well, what about for the sake of 30? What about 40? What about 25? What about 10? You remember that? And Abram is the one who calls off the negotiations. But what is... What is Abram doing? He is crying. He is praying. Go cry to that city. Shall I hide what I'm about to do? And you got this floating around, and what has God done to Jonah? I just told you to go cry to that city. You are a people who are created for this. What are you supposed to do? What is Jonah supposed to do? 
He's supposed to do the Abraham thing. He's supposed to pray for them. He's supposed to cry out for them. Will you destroy the innocent? And that's going to show up. The sailors bring it up. Don't let this innocent man's blood come on my account. And then the book ends with, there are 120,000 people who do not know the right from the left. Your English translations might put right hand and left hand. That's, they're adding that. But that's a phrase that comes from the Torah for people who don't know how to do the right and the wrong. They are innocent Abraham said, for 50 people who don't, they're righteous, will you blow them up? And now God throws it in Jonah's face at the end of the book. There's 120,000. What are you doing, Jonah? You, you're, you're being derelict in your job. What are you supposed to be? Remember the story. You remember who you are. You're supposed to be a blessing to the nations. Have we become a curse rather than a blessing? So, the narrator picks up on this and goes, Hey, no, the, the son of faithfulness, what does the son of faithfulness do? He immediately flies away. He negates the truth. He negates his faithfulness. He negates his truthfulness by disobedience. Not only does he not cry out about Nineveh, he wants to fly away from the face of God to a place called Tarshish. Now, as we go through this story, and it's mentioned three times, it's one of those words that's repeated in the opening, and it's never mentioned again. Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. I don't think the author really cares where this place is, okay? But in the biblical narrative, Tarshish becomes a symbol of, of the place where they don't know who Yahweh is. So, a place for that is Isaiah chapter 66. Let's go there. And I want you to see what it says here. Isaiah chapter 66, and I'm going to read in verse 18. And notice how it makes some interesting connections here. It says, for, this is Isaiah 66, verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts, and I am coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory, and I shall set a sign among them. The word sign is going to show up. Even Jesus uses it, the sign of Jonah. A sign among them. That's what I'm going to do. And from them, from them, the nations, I will send survivors to the nations to Tarshish to put to lewd, who knows where these places are, which draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, and notice what it says, who have not heard of my name. And we had a discussion the other night, but this is Bobby Valentine's view. Jonah never mentions the name of the Lord to the Ninevites. These people, it says, they have not heard of my fame, and they have not seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the names, the nations. They shall bring your kindred from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters and on mules and on uh, dromedaries, which are camels, and to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring a grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and I will also take from some of them 
as priests and Levites, says the Lord. And the word Tarshish is in the middle of all that. They are the people who don't know the glory of the Lord. They don't know the name of the Lord. They don't know this. And where does Jonah want to go? He knows the name of the Lord. He is the son of faithfulness. He is the true one. And what does he do? He even And he is the beloved one. He is the Yoda. And he flies away to the place where Yahweh, not God, where Yahweh is not known. That's what he's trying to do, which is kind of interesting. And sometimes, uh, uh, as I said at Eastside just the, the other day, sometimes we are a whole lot more religious than we are gracious. Uh, and sometimes I think that we like our religion more than we like our God. And Jonah is wrestling with those kinds of, of issues. So, in the rest of the chapter we have this, and this is obscured in your English translation. He goes down to Joppa. It does say that. But then he goes down into the ship. Your translation will say that he boarded the ship. But he went down into the ship. And then he goes down into a deep sleep. You got this down, down, down stuff. And then, as the story goes... He goes down to the gates of Sheol, which that's as far as you can get away from Yahweh, right? From the presence of God. Uh, so, I have to wait on that one. They're on the ship, and the captain, and when the, the storm shows up, Everyone cried to their Elohim. They're all pagans. Everyone's crying. Now, it's kind of interesting. God told Jonah to cry. The captain actually quotes the words of God at the opening of chapter 1, verse 2, and says, cry to your gods. That's the same word. Okay? Cry to Nineveh. Cry to your gods. Is it praying or is it preaching? What is it? And then... <laughs> the captain uh, goes to Jonah, and this is actually this is where he quotes God. He says, "Get up and cry! Get up and cry!" That's that was God's words to Jonah: "Get up and cry! Get up and cry to Nineveh! Get up and cry to your God!" Which is the same as one two quoting Yahweh. So suddenly, the captain—it's almost Jonah. You haven't gotten away from Jonah. I mean, God. You haven't gotten away from Yahweh. He's talking to you through the captain. Listen to the voice. And then, all right, so what's happening next is, and we're just picking some stuff out of chapter 1 here. Um, <clears throat> we get to uh, verse 9. And I, I like Gerhard von Rod, a great classic German scholar in his uh, Old Testament theology. He made this statement. He said, Jonah is at his worst when he discusses religion with the ship's captain. <laughs> but Jonah is 100% completely orthodox. To use good Church of Christ lingo, he is sound. He is sound. He has the correct theology. When the Pagan sailors come to him and say, who are you? Where do you come from? What country is it? All that jazz. You remember that. 
Jonah articulates perfect theology. He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear, I worship. That's one of those words that can be a poly word. What, what is being said here? I fear, I worship, I revere Yahweh, the God of heaven. You're crying out to all your... I worship the God of heaven. Who did what? Who made the sea and the dry land. And which is so interesting because he's trying to run away on the sea from the God who made it. Right? And so you're supposed to chuckle with that. Because you know the story and you see how absurd it is. Because sometimes we articulate stuff that we call faith and we have no idea what it actually means when we live it. I am a Hebrew. I serve. I worship Yahweh. And an echo of this is going to show up in Jonah's hymn or song or prayer in chapter 2. This orthodox confession in the midst of rebellion. Some of the most heinous Crimes in the history of Christianity had been committed by people who were completely sound. <coughs> but they don't have a clue who God is. And because they don't have a clue who God is, we don't function as the people. God. So, the irony. Uh, this, our author loves it. He's exquisite. He loves it. Um, in the storm, is the storm a mere storm? Um, the, <clears throat> we're going to get to that in a little bit. Uh, the storm is, uh, um, I'm going to argue it's a theophany. God is showing up. Um, but, they say, what? How can we make this go away? And this was my VBS training. Jonah feels sorry for those sailors. Jonah does not feel sorry for those sailors. <laughs> okay? Um, Jonah wants to get away from God. And he's willing to die to do it. Jonah wants to die. Okay? God is after him. He knows that. So he says, kill me. The devil wants out. And remember we argued that chapter 4 is the mirror. Remember us doing that? Okay. Well, in chapter 4, Jonah literally says, I'm better off dead four times. Jonah wants to be dead. Okay? Jonah could have, when the, when the captain said, Hey, what do we got to do? Jonah could have said, You know, it's my fault. I am in rebellion against the Lord. He is the one. I do worship Him. I have, I have made a mistake. I have disobeyed God. I, I am sorry, Yahweh. I repent. Jonah didn't say any of that. And Jonah knows, because he knows the story, that God would forgive him at the heartbeat. So what does he do? Jonah could call to Yahweh. That's after all what he's been called to do. The, the, the captain said call to Yahweh. But Jonah doesn't do it. He doesn't call out to Yahweh. Even at that point, Jonah refuses to talk to God. He's running away from his face. Then he could repent. <coughs> Jonah is the alternative Abraham. 
before Sodom. Well, all right. I'm going to, our time is running up, so, okay. Um, I want you to see this. Uh, okay. Oh, just look at this. Jonah has the hymnal memorized. Almost every word, in, and this is, this is not a complete list by any stretch of imagination. I just couldn't get it all in a single slide, okay? So, uh, Jonah has the hymnal memorized. And so when he is in that fish, when he finally prays, but he's got to marinate for three days and three nights, that's a long time. He doesn't start praying when the fish swallowed him. He doesn't start praying until after he's there for three days and three nights. You need to remember that. Jonah refuses to talk to God. But he finally does. And when he does, he sounds very pious. He sounds very religious. He sounds religious. He does not sound penitent. Jonah, and some people disagree with me on this, but uh, Jonah does not repent. Jonah is thankful, eventually, that, that Yahweh heard him, but he's thankful because he has an air of superiority. I worship, I'm a Hebrew, you're a pagan. It's kind of like that Pharisee one day, Jesus says, there's two guys that go into the temple, and one wouldn't even look up at the heavens. And the other one said, I thank you that I'm not like this person over here. And the other one wouldn't even look up, and Jesus says, which one do you think had mercy that day? Um, so, all right. But you... See, the author knows that you know what biblical repentance looks like because you have the music in your head. The story David's going to show up in chapter 3. So he already knows that you know this. Okay? This is what repentance looks like. Have mercy on me, O God. Does Jonah say that? No. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your hesitant word that Jonah just quoted. Well, he will quote in chapter 2. And, and, and according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly in my iniquity, my, and cleanse me from my sin. For, my, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That word that shows up over and over and over in Jonah. I've done evil in your sight. Create in me a new heart and put a right spirit in me. Do not cast me away. Oh, this is so ironic when it comes to the story of Jonah. Jonah wants to run from the face of God, and David is saying, don't cast me away. The people of God do not want to be away from the presence of God. They don't want to be away from the face of God. We sin, yes, we screw up, we do it all, but God, do not throw us away. Do not cast us off. Hey, we have messed up. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And we just saw from that slide before that Jonah has the hymnal memorized. He could have quoted this. But he didn't. And another Jew prayed like this. A psalm of repentance. O Lord Almighty, 
God our ancestors, the Lord Most High, of great compassion, long-suffering, very merciful, you relent, a word that shows up in our text in Jonah, you relent at suffering. O Lord, you have promised repentance and forgiveness to those who have sinned against you. The sins I have committed are more than the sands of the sea. My transgressions are multiplied, O Lord. They are multiplied. Oh, and now I bend the knee of my heart, imploring you for your kindness. I have sinned, O Lord, I have sinned. I earnestly implore you, forgive me, O Lord, forgive me. Do not destroy me with my transgressions. That's a prayer that's in the Apocrypha called the Prayer of Manasseh. So when Manasseh prayed before the Lord after he got his eyes poked out, you know, that's according to Jewish tradition, that's what he prayed. So the Jews have got these wonderful models of repentance. Jonah's not one. But it's interesting that the book of Jonah is read on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Repentance. Isn't that interesting? We can learn a lot from the Jews on this book. All right, well, that's where we're at. We're going to end there. And um, uh, kind of wetting your appetite because that's going to set us up for chapter... The real, the real crux of the matter is the Jonah-Yahweh thing in chapter 4. Uh, when they wrestle and it is a dogfight. and what does it mean when god is king and i am not what does it mean to wrestle with god what does it mean to be the people of god what does it mean to be a blessing to the world and we're going to come back to that that exodus narrative again so anyway i want to thank you for coming and being with us uh tonight i hope that you found it interesting and maybe we'll see you tomorrow uh, later. Y'all be blessed. Thanks for coming out.